Hello, everyone. So nice to reconnect here. I don't feel like there's been a lot of distance between us. It's amazing. I'm in Seattle, and uh, it, it feels a, like a very close proximity to me, to you and uh, all of us together in this, uh, this Sangha. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm of two thoughts. Uh, one thought is to continue a little bit with the theme of the morning, uh, just to kind of round it out and then move into the top topic. The other thought is not to do that because it's too, too um, different from what I was going to speak about. And so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I talked myself out of it. Okay, so uh, the talk uh, is really a two-part talk uh, today and the day after tomorrow. And the title of it is Exploring Meditation as a Gateway to Transcendent Awareness. Talk one, talk two. Now, so saying about distractions, I, I want to talk, I want to have, there's a little side talk here uh, that I want to talk about because I think they're, it's not understood and it's a, it's they're kind of an important component of a deeper Dharma understanding. And that's, uh, I just want to mention and just take a few minutes to talk about insight, realization, and transmission. Uh, and uh, because I think they're misunderstood for the most part or for, for much of it, and to bring them uh, within the human, not, there's, they, they can be thought of as being very esoteric, uh, you know, sort of the mystical side of, of it all, but it's it's actually a very uh, explainable phenomenon when we understand that the stillness of awareness and the mental noise of the mind, we can understand these three components. And insight, of course, is something that probably, if not all of us, many of us have had multiple um, experiences with, and it's a um, it's 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 not, it's understanding it's revelation without intellectualization there's no intellect uh, there's no uh, conceptualization to it it's a direct contact with the truth of what we are seeing um, and it shows you very clearly that there's an alternate way of knowing besides the intellect besides the ponderance that we usually go through within our normal day uh, experience of knowing. And so uh, one of the, kind of a definition I use for insight is the unfiltered exposure to truth. It's not filtered by concept. It's uh, what happens usually is it's a, it, you ponder about something mentally or you just wonder about it. And that wondering takes you to stillness, takes you to quiet. And that quietness reveals uh, the curiosity of your of the direction of your of your insight, and so the, the, that revelation. Oh wow! It feels it's really um, exhilarating to have an insight. It's a uh, it's uplifting, and I, I mention that because to abide in stillness, this is a, a glimpse 
through stillness, that's what insight is, but to abide in stillness holds that exhilarating factor. It's not, it's like, oh, you know, that sense of awe, that sense of wonder, that sense of, oh, like that. Uh, so that we're getting a glimpse not only of what it is that we uh, were focused upon, but also we're getting a sense of the taste of what the unconditioned feels like to live within it. Uh, and it's, and it's quite, uh, it's quite nice. So insights are really small openings. Uh, and uh, I often think of it as uh, when you see one of those um, uh, stadiums, uh, like a sports stadium, it, it's all, it starts uh, perhaps at, like uh, the Olympics or something, where it's at night. And you see all the flashes of the light bulbs, of the uh, flashes of the uh, cameras uh, throughout the darkened stadium. Those are like insights, you know? And there will be a time, and perhaps many of you have experienced this time, where uh, one gets, uh, understands how the mechanism of insight works, gives him or herself over to that, and then the lights just start flashing like that depending upon where or what the mind is, is, uh, is where the mind is directed. So that's insight. Now realization, that's a, that's a different phenomenon. Uh, although insights are the, uh, supportive component of realization. Realization, it took me a long time to understand what realization was. I knew, what it felt like to have a realization. It's it, like it's it's an unexplainable confidence and assurance of the tr of the truth. But I couldn't figure out whether it was coming through inside or whether it was a different level of of uh, seeing or what it was. Uh, I sort of worked it out in my own mind. Satisfaction is that it's a it's a really a shifting of what we know the world to be. When you have enough insights, usually what happens after an insight is you go back to the normal way that you see the world and you say, oh, that was interesting. Ordinary consciousness, returning to ordinary consciousness after the insight. So that was interesting, but it didn't really change much. It opened me to a particular level of experience and, and, uh, and uh, acceptance of that as the true path forward. But in terms of my worldview, it stayed pretty, pretty fixed. But after a number of these insights, the shifting of the worldview uh, begins to turn. And you don't see in the same way that you saw prior to uh, those small openings. And so it's like, it's all of a sudden, uh, the world is different. And it's not different theoretically or philosophically or intellectually. It's different in perception. It's different as a realized experience. Uh, and so it becomes, an, it's not arguable. It's not arguable. And that is where uh, our practice ultimately rests, is within that realized alteration of view. Uh, <clears throat> So, you know, you start, 
you start, here's an example, quite likely, that you don't relate to the mind in the same way you did. Through insights, you've had a different realization of what the mind is. Uh, and it's not the, the governing, all-empowered thing called you anymore, if you've been with the practice for a while. And you don't have to argue that. Maybe a neurologist or somebody of, of science would argue that it's differently. But you, having realized that, it's just not, you just don't have to argue it. You know it. You know that is a fact. Well, that whole view of what reality is shifts in accordance to time and insight as well. Okay, so um, that's important because uh, we, we don't realize that um, movement on the path really does shift the way we perceive life. That's why we feel more connected. We, we may not... Uh, as yet see that sense of connection, but we know that it is the truth of life, interconnectedness. It's not arguable. And at some point, we'll actually, as the realization deepens, we'll actually see in interconnected ways as opposed to individuated ways, which is conventional consciousness. Now, transmission, uh, this one we have to be a little bit careful with because um, people give their lives over to people who they think are transmitting the right energies to them and gurus and all that stuff. But we are always in a state of transmission. Uh, we just, it's usually a profane transmission. It's usually a, a guarded and energetic or emotional energy that we're communicating. You feel it when somebody's angry. You feel it when somebody's impatient. You feel it when somebody's being stubborn. You feel all those. Those are you could you could probably close your eyes and sense what that person was was happening to them emotionally. Um, so there's a transmission of energy <clears throat> that's uh, pretty continuous. It's just we don't we and it, it affects us. I mean, we let it in and it affects us. If you are passing somebody on the street and you say hello and they're all tied up in their own angst and they wave you off for most of us it stays with you for a while you know that transmission of of uh, contraction that they that they ju that just occurred can stay with us so our energy is transmission now for some people uh, there is a level of stillness uh, where they rest uh, partially, if not entirely, within that stillness. Stillness has its own transmission, has its own has its own energy, and it's it's startlingly different than the energies of mental transmission, and that uh, affects us very deeply. Uh, and uh, when we're within that energy source, uh, you can feel it. You can feel it as a direct impact upon us. And what it does is that the transmission is that it's touching in you and us the place where we are still. So that energy is opening up from the person from which it might have originated. It's opening up that 
perceptual field to us. And we think we have to stay within close proximity of the person who's emitting that in order to feel what we're feeling. Well, for a while that may be true, but we have to realize that that sense of stillness is intrinsic. It's not a, it's not a transmittable energy from one source to me. It's intrinsic within each of us and within all things, actually. Within the tree you see or the plant can transmit a stillness to us. We just allow it. It's beautiful, actually. And so sometimes, you know, in the course of why when I'm speaking about stillness, I can feel stillness be permeate in the in the cloistered sangha that we have. So anyway, so that's transmission. Don't make it into something, you know, oh he's so or she's so, you know, just it's normal. It's a normal, it's normal. And it's in us. It's not some um, special event that someone can do when someone else can't. Let's normalize this stuff so that we don't become dependent upon external forces for what's intrinsic and natural within us. And to show you that, there's, there's a sense of self-transmission <clears throat> uh, that through inquiry is self-transmission. It's beautiful. You'll see when we do uh, dyads that will give you uh, a conventional question like uh, what, am, what am I struggling with in this moment? And you can talk about all the ways you struggle from a conventional point of view. And then after a certain exchange of that, we'll give you a second question. Who would I be without struggle? Now see that, that pulls the intellectual response out from under us. And we catch a glimpse within not knowing. We don't know. Who would I be without struggle? Dead stop, stillness. If you try to figure it out, that's the wrong way to do it. But it should just it should throw you so far off balance that you're left kind of gaping at the question. Who, who would I be without struggle? I have no idea. But not that's the end. Don't say I have no idea because that that's a conclusion that takes you away from stillness. Just hold the question. It's an entry into stillness. And that is self-transmission through inquiry. We're using our own stillness to give us a glimpse of our intrinsic nature by use of a question. It's extraordinary. If you understand what you're doing in these dyads or in these questions that we're offer, often offering in the course of a retreat, you'll see that uh, these are very valuable inroads uh, to getting a sense of the stillness that's at the base level of our aliveness. And it gets so that you want to ask yourself questions. Like if I were, if I were about ready to give you the secret of the universe, all right, I'd say, okay, here's the secret of the universe. We would be dead stop. 
<clears throat> Let me give you an example, a more mundane example, a little less cosmological. Uh, I was uh, working uh, with a hospice patient, this was many, many decades ago, and uh, she was uh, what we call actively dying, so we knew she was going to die soon. And she uh, didn't want to die at home, which is unusual for a hospice patient. She asked to go to our inpatient unit. She had two children and a husband, and uh, we uh, we abided by her wishes, although hospices uh, usually try to keep people at home. In this case, she didn't want to be at home. So we took her to the inpatient unit, and as soon as we got her in the bed, uh, all of us who had brought her there, the clinicians, the hospice clinicians, as well as the family, were all... Um, surrounded her bed holding hands with her hands. So one person was holding hands and then we were all holding hands and then the last person was holding her other hand. And she was telling us what it was like to die. She was actually verbally speaking what it was like to die. Now to a hospice patient, that's like, you want to hear the secret of the universe? <laughs> we were in rapt attention. And she she talked us through as far as she could. She said, I can know I don't remember the order, and the order is probably important, but I don't remember it. She said, in succession, she said, I can't feel my body anymore. And then she said, uh, I can't hear anymore. And then she tried to say something and died. And so we were, I don't know how many minutes all of us who were still gathered around that bed stood in complete attention and awe to what that person was saying to us, that patient. But it was, in my recollection, several minutes. And then, of course, the family realized what had happened in terms of their conventional life. And they started to cry and mourn and et cetera. And then all the hospice staff, you know, uh, addressed their needs, et cetera. But the point of it all is, is that that sense of stillness was communicative. It was communicative because we were interested. We were curious about that next step. What's it like to die? No one could answer that question in the room there because we hadn't died. No one could answer what it was like to die. It was an unanswerable question that she was taking us down into. So too, the questions we self-transmit through inquiry. These are unanswerable questions because we haven't lived sufficiently within the unconditioned experience of stillness to know what it's like not to struggle at all. We only know the world of struggle and tension etc etc so realization transmission inquiry insight these are the gateways to the transcendent these are the little inroads now um it doesn't the normal path of practice doesn't just flow in an upward direction towards the um unconditioned it's it's like shoots and ladders i think that's the name of the game where you either go the whole board or you can find a little ladder that you know 
some, you know, you cut a part of it off, but most of us have to travel the whole board or you go backward and all that stuff. Meditation feels like that. But every step of the way, we are actually moving forward, even though we think we've just been set back or we missed a big opportunity to get ahead. We missed the teacher that everybody was talking about or teaching that was so, oh, you should hear all that. We might have missed it, but it is, is our path forward. The only, what you are living now is your path forward. There's not an alternative way you could awaken. The way you are now moving and addressing events is your way to awaken. Most of that includes rather conventional means. It, it includes uh, what I have spoken about in past retreats, thinning and softening the self, where even though we're not, having insights perhaps in that moment or we're not engaged in the deepest pursuits of practice we can still look at ourselves and soften ourselves we can still feel ourselves thinning by not getting in self-centered positions and and uh this uh, egoic strategies of of um, of ego development and ego proclaiming and all of that stuff. You know, you just, a genuine spiritual journey means thinning that stuff, not claiming more of it from our spiritual journey. I mean, I'm the best meditator, I'm the this, I'm the, there's no time for that. It's in the wrong direction. The right direction is less self-concern, less self-influence. And that involves less self-influence upon our meditation, our, the way we engage in meditation. But the ego will remain in our practice for a long period of time. It just does. I remember going to a Nisargadatta who was a teacher of mine, I think I, it was in January 1980, so I'm dating myself. And uh, I was being steered by my ego and I went to him with a question and he listened to me a while. Uh, and then he just, uh, he was, you know, he just kind of shook his head in a dismissive kind of way and says, uh, you know, you're like a person carrying a flashlight trying to run beyond its beam. I said, what did he just say? I'm a person carrying a flashlight trying to run beyond its beam. Meaning, after I deciphered what, he says, this is not of your making. You know, drop the flashlight and see the light is really what he was saying. Give yourself over to the direction it's taking you, but you don't have to, you don't have to, So that led me uh, to a, a ponderance, an inquiry, of an investigation of, so this is not of my making, so where do I fit in on this? What's my job in my awakening? Well, we've already spoken about that, so I won't 
dwell on it for a long period of time, but it's to establish the ground, the foundation on which steadiness of mind can, can collect. And uh, that's huge. That's huge. I've seen people get into these non-dual teachings and have no steadiness because they don't have the foundation that we have had in the Vipassana training. And their minds are like all over. And I think, well, that's fine. They can think non-dual all they want, but unless their mind is steady and can pay attention outside of their thinking, can select whether they can release that thought or just involve themselves in that thought. So part of the training is being able to pay attention, learning how to pay attention. Now, uh, on day one, we were given a choice. We could follow the breath, staying with the breath, or we could go off into thought. And we saw that if we went off into thought, we wouldn't have the awareness of being able to pay attention. So from day one, and certainly encouraged thereafter, we selected the collectedness as opposed to the thinking of the mind, the collectedness, that which knows the difference between thought, thinking a thought and releasing a thought and letting it be. Paying attention, the ability and training necessary to pay attention is huge. It's, it's an underestimated uh, worth, has underestimated worth in the whole spiritual journey. I've seen it. I've seen people who haven't done sufficient training in that area. And many teachers now are going back who have been teaching uh, spirituality in a non-dualistic way are going back because they realize that their students aren't following them. The students don't have the basis on which to move forward. They don't have the steadiness, don't know the difference between thought and awareness. So that's, that's, establishing that ground, we can now begin to, to soften and thin our sense of self because we know what the sense of self is as opposed to just being lost within the sense of self and its endless thinking. We have a greater sense of what, what is the self and that gets to the point where you can, you can actually release the need to self-aggrandize or react or all of that, which is a huge step forward. Now, the thing about uh, quieting the self and thinning the self is that uh, there's also the greatest mistake we can make is making ourselves relevant within the spiritual search. So that sounds counteractive, but counterintuitive, but it's really this was, it's what Nisargadatta was telling me, really. He was saying, just release yourself. Don't, don't make yourself into a problem. Find out what you are through what he called the I am, sort of like the guided meditation last night. Don't make yourself more relevant than the emptiness that you see you are. Uh, now, that can take a while to sort of understand how to how to maneuver around that understanding, that insight. Uh, I often think of it as like a, one of these uh, 
old gas mower, gas powered lawnmowers where you just have to keep pulling the, the cord to get it to start up. It takes a while for us to get that sense of, okay, we're moving this thing, uh, moving this thing now, you know, because we keep getting lost in the conventional. I mean, all around us, people are saying, what's wrong with your conventional mind? I'm using my conventional mind. They're not saying that, but that's, that's the model of culture we have. And so we keep getting lost back into it because everybody's doing it. But at some point, it's not sufficient for the meditator. It's not sufficient. The, the, that model of thinking and reacting and, I mean, look at the world. Look at the world, not just now, but in endless history. It's all very much in line with thinking. Now, I want, to, I want to read you something because this is kind of the heart of what I wanted to talk about. The Sutta Napata, uh, in the great chapter of the Sutta Napata, which I really encourage all of you to read, it's just an amazingly depth. There's amazing depth to it. Um, but it's about effort. One insight is that effort is the basis of all suffering. The other insight is that by the complete cooling and cessation of effort, no more suffering is produced. There are two insights, grasp them together and with energy, dedication and care, you can expect one of those two results. Each form of suffering grows out of effort. effort. Eradicate effort and no more suffering is produced. Considering, consider the limited consequences of effort that is the basis of suffering. But when all effort has been abandoned, there's the freedom of the effortless. So, whoa. Talk about running, carrying your flashlight, trying to run beyond its beam. Effort is what most of us have, have formed our practice around. Now, this is a, a really crucial point. The realization of the limitation of effort, which is willful, willful force, forward, willful, I'm going to do, you know, what I think I need to do and setting that course and determination, you see, you're in charge. So you're not being seen. When you're in charge, you are not being seen. When you're not being seen, the limitless, the unconditioned is, can, is just about as far away or seems to be just about as far away from us as it could possibly be. When you're in charge, that's the opposite. Of the, that's the conditioning of you, which is not the area that we want to eventually uh, land. So this this is really a the realization of this fix begins to transform our relationship with form, and move us gently into the formless. Because all form, the distinction of all form, the distance that we have between ourselves and all formations, is self. Inter, there's a self intervening. That's why there's a distance. I know this. I know this. This I know. There's a difference between me and this, a distance between it, you see? And so that's why form is formed. It's because of what I have made it into through my mental investment in that object. That's 
a form of effort. That effort is continuously coming from us in terms of our identifying the things of the world and me separate from those things of the world. So that is how form formed. That's the formation of form. Now, the point that Nisargadatta was trying to make, in my opinion, is, okay, you can drop that need, that effort, that torch, and not self-carry it, and let this self to be a light that surrounds you. And this is, this is the intersection between the secular and the sacred. The secular remains secularly, the secular remains secular, distant from the sacred because form is seen as separate from the formless, that which is not composed of, of a distinction, that which is not distinguished from. I hope everybody, I'm just going on and on here. I'm hoping you all are able to follow me a little. I uh, hope I'm explaining it well. But so now our self-directed movement forward has shifted from searching for the sacred, which is my effort to try to find it, carrying the flashlight, to the end of seeking. It has to. There's nowhere else I can go. I've thrown down the flashlight. I, I don't know. I'm here now. I'm not looking ahead of myself to see where I'm going and trying to get there. I'm effort. That was my effort that did that. Now I've abandoned effort and I'm dead stop. There's nothing else I can do when I see it insightfully in a realized manner my worldview shifts out of a world in which effort was what created everything. My image made me what I am, all of that. But now I've abandoned that. Why would I ever abandon that? Because I see that all it does is provide a greater context for ego survival. And I can't touch the sacred. I can't touch it. Now, see, we know how to use instructions effortfully, but now let's learn how to use them in service of surrender. Surrender is how we eliminate everything that's unessential to expose raw reality. If I'm, I'm here, what do I need to do to make it more here? You see, what I need to do is to release everything the mind says is not here. <laughs> get, get, try, please try to understand that point because it's an important one. My effort, it was always about going somewhere else, building upon myself, adding something, carrying the flashlight, trying to run beyond its being. And now it's brought me to the state of effortlessness. Now, my whole training in meditation has been able to, has been following the instructions with effort. Sit down, follow your breath, 
see the thought, come back, you know, all of that has a certain effortfulness in it. But that's not, that's still running with a flashlight. What's meditation look like when it's based in surrender? And I don't mean surrender to a, a guru or a god or anything. I mean surrendering our separation, surrendering our effort. Now, when you surrender effort, there's nothing left. It's not like there's something else that comes in. There's nothing left. And that's anything that's, you can't surrender the unconditioned because surrender is the unconditioned. <laughs> you're not doing it, you're releasing everything. And so everything that's built on top of the unconditioned gets surrendered and released. And that takes you to the act of living within surrender. I, I'm hoping people follow this because I'm using words that may be confusing. Maybe in the Q&A section this afternoon or tomorrow we can talk about this if you'd like. So now my worldview is changing. This is a huge realization. This shifts me completely out of everything. It's a complete demarcation from the way I have been practicing up until that. If the line is couldn't be clearer now, that the unconditioned is, and I need not seek it. And I need not effortly try to find it. I need to surrender the thoughts that tell me I'm not there. Because that's what seems to indicate that I'm not. Just my thinking. Just my thinking. And I can't bring, build in another logic thought to counteract that thought because then it's just self-building. Because the self builds upon thought after thought. I have to surrender thinking. So you ask, how, how do you surrender thinking? You just don't pick it up. You let it move through you. You don't pick it up. You don't carry forth. You don't carry it forth. This shifts the worldview completely because our worldview was formed from thinking. And now you're not using thinking as the binding tool to keep everything together. Do, does everything fall apart? No, everything comes together with not thinking. Thinking kept it apart. It's so funny. It's so funny. Thinking was the thing that kept it apart. So we now begin to realize interconnection. We begin to see it. Separation is when we feel separate, we know it's, a, we know it's not true. We, this is not true. So we surrender our need for separation. Why? Because it's not true. It's not true. We've seen it. We've seen that it's not true. We've realized that. It's not arguable. It's not arguable. Some of you may be arguing. I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> it's not true. We keep reinforcing the world we used to know, the struggles we asserted in the old worldview, the willpower, the narrative. All that hardens the world of form, you and I, this and that. Surrender springs from the formless. Formless awareness requires a change of application, no longer thought-driven. 
Now it's truth driven. What I know is true. I'm not going to go back. I don't have time to go back and make sure that all the T's are crossed. You see it, that's done. I don't have to revisit the scene. It was joyful. I saw it. That's a revelation. You go, whoa, whoa, that's really, you know, okay, so that's it. <laughs> that's it. As long as we are form driven, our worldview is held in place. Look around. That's because your sense of you is formed driven and it forms the sense of you, the sense of I, forms the world around me to be as distinct as I feel I am. Right? Our narrative sustains that worldview. And the worldview is tied to everything, not just once we identify anything within that worldview, the whole of the worldview is created. All your narrative, your past, your future expectations, all your injuries, your struggles, your resentments, your objections, all of that, everything, total, worldview, total. Okay. So I will pick up this theme uh, coming up uh, in our next one. And let me just, uh, let me just uh, finish up here uh, so that uh, we have a smooth landing here. So how do we know we're beyond thinking? How do we know we're to the place where we're, well, first of all, you should be, you not, you should be, but there will be a curiosity about thinking. You think, well, why, is it, why am I still, it's not, you're not perturbed at yourself. This is the passion of a question. Why am I still doing this? Why am I still thinking my way? Why am I still thinking my way through life? It sounds like I'm perturbed or impatient. I'm not. It's like, come on, I, I want to show up for this thing. It's like, a, do you ever have an old car that you've driven for years and years? You love it. You know, it's, it's got all the history and everything in it. And it's, uh, it's yours and you're comfortable in it. And you know exactly how it works and how to fix it and all of that. And it's time to give it up. And uh, so there's some reluctance to give it up because it's so familiar. And yet you know that uh, the world, a new world awaits with a new vehicle, electric vehicle, let's say. And that's, that's how we know, it just feels like it's time. It doesn't mean we don't still use thought in the way that can be helpful sometimes, but uh, it's not very helpful. <laughs> it's not very helpful. There are, you know, you, logic is helpful and all of that, but in general, you get quieter. Now we return to mindfulness. The ability to see. But before we were interested in what we were seeing. But now we're interested in the seeing itself of mindfulness. And once we have freed up 
I'm trying to get all the mind straightened out and all the reactions and all of this and that, you know, then we're interested in the seeing itself. And the seeing itself frees us from the identification of and with the mind. If we're trying to fix the mind, that's still the effortful way of still being involved in the mind and with the mind. But if it's just seeing, all I want to do is see. This just me see, okay, mind is coming up. Okay, just to open. So we have to clean up our mindfulness, <clears throat> releasing the contaminating thoughts that still accompany mindfulness into that seeing. And if you're honest, you'll see that there is a placeholder in which we are commenting upon what we are seeing. We are reforming or materializing formations from the chatter of the mindfulness. The mindfulness needs to be clean. Mindfulness is just seeing. If seeing has a placeholder and a, and a commentary, it's too much. We've got to clean this up. And so now we take mindfulness and we look at what it is that's confusing it. What, the, where the judgments, where the comments are coming from. The witness, it's often called. And as we do, we begin to see universally. The witness kept, a, kept the, the flashlight pointing forward. We drop the flashlight, the whole room is light and sees everything. There is no one seeing after that. No one seeing. Once freed of someone seeing, we're now residing in seeing. There's just seeing. So there's not I'm residing in seeing, there's just seeing because the I has no place or purpose anymore. It was the commentator. The I is nothing, it's nothing. And it's very easy to release it. And what's left is everything. Huh? What's left is everything. Clear awareness. Clear awareness. Clear awareness. And that's a gateway. Exploring meditation as a gateway to transcendent awareness. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Maybe we can just sit for a minute or two. Just sitting. Whatever is happening, it's okay. Just give space. Just let space envelop everything. Don't you give space. That's effort. Just let space envelop what is being seen. Feel the stillness. Feel it. 
feel it. Since, since its proximity, in fact, abide within it as part of it, as it, that's the last step of releasing the commentary, is the distance we set ourselves up between the reality that is and the sense of me that's very much diminished now, but still has a sticky presence unless we close that distance. The distance is just conceptual. There's no distance. So we can give that concept up. Okay, let's come back together here. We have about a half an hour before, about 40 minutes before Qigong, Qigong, 30, 35 minutes. I really encourage you, especially uh, if you feel, uh, if you feel the impact of the talk, I hope you do. Now you want to embody that impact. So you need something like Qigong for it to become cellular. Uh, at least I have found it to be very, very helpful to bring it down from a kind of a buzzing up here down to the cells of the body. So you move with it. You move within, within that frame of reference. Stillness. 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 Okay, I sign off. <laughs> Thank you all for your attention. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.